Now going to have our reading, which um, comes from Luke 15. If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1049. Luke 15, I'm reading from verse 1 through to verse 24. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. That's Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods of the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What's the most expensive thing you have ever lost? What is the most expensive thing you have ever ever lost. Just have a little share with your partner just for five seconds. I want to see who is the record holder at Long Credit Baptist Church. If it is a bit personal, um, feel free to keep that to yourself. What is the most expensive thing you have ever lost? Okay. Uh, my attempt is to try and beat you, although it's a bit, bit sly. Uh, I'll start just because, Jeff, have you lost anything expensive? What did, she, what did Hannah lose? 
You lost her engagement ring. Did you find it again? No. It was actually stolen. Oh, okay. Well, it still counts. It still counts. It wasn't me. Um, okay. I bought it. Yeah. <laughs> I fenced it. <laughs> well, there is a credit crunch on. Um, Kathy was volunteering Neil. Um, uh, it's only fair if Jeff did it. Neil, what's the most expensive um, thing? I lost our son. You lost your son. Oh, how much do you value your son out in this fiscal climate? Which one was it? Oh, it doesn't matter. Um, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, Faye's not here. Um, anything else? Any other things that have been lost? The expensive things that have been lost? Anything else that's been lost? Uh, Alistair? You lost, how long did it take? An hour, yeah, yeah. Um, I must confess, and um, in one sense you've stolen my thunder, but um, I, <laughs> uh, two weeks ago, uh, I lost my car in the uh, Tesco car park, although there are other supermarkets, um, and I lost it for two, and four hour, uh, two hours, four minutes. Um, and I, I was having a complete mental block, and I realised I parked it at McDonald's, not in the Tesco car park. So, uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, when we lose things that are precious, I don't know about you, I feel really anxious. I feel like really anxious when you've lost something. I, most of you know I've lost my wedding ring. Um, uh, I, I haven't lost the second one, but I'm just not wearing it at the moment. Um, uh, but I, I managed to, to get an insurance company, but it's still not the same. It's not the same. Now, a second question, just to discuss quickly. In the parables we read, so we read about um, a lost sheep, a lost coin, uh, and a lost son. There is a very clear theme that comes out in both, uh, all, all three, in fact. Exactly the same kind of wording, exactly the same pattern there for a purpose, a purpose to teach us. Just if you're okay with your neighbour, what are the two aspects of the theme that come out? And don't flash up the yet. you can flash the question up. Um, but what are the very two clear things that come out in every single parable and the wording is pretty much identical? Does that make sense? Just in your partners, I know it's a hard question, but once you've answered this, we can go home. So... Uh, Luke 15 contains three parables which have a common pattern. And do get involved in the Bible, because the, the, the reason I ask this sort of question is I want us to get into the Bible, to see what the Bible says to us, what God's word is for us, um, and it's good to do it, and then we'll speak a bit more as well. A couple more, a few more seconds. There's a, the third one is slightly different, but the pattern is very clear still. It's quite simple, but also detailed. If you haven't got a Bible and you want one to join in, just nick one from your neighbour, uh, unless they're using it. Okay, any ideas? Any ideas? Two aspects, two aspects that are very clearly evident in all three. Um, absolutely spot on. So do you see, in every single parable, and, and it's deliberately there, for example, in the parable of the lost sheep, the guy comes home, he says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be rejoicing in heaven. Uh, that's uh, verse 6 and 7. In the parable of the lost coin, uh, the lady finds the coin. Verse 9, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is rejoicing in heaven. In the third one, it's a bit more tricky, but the, the dad reaches out to the son. My son has been found. He explains it to his other son, who kicks up a bit of a fuss because there's a party and thinks he should have had a better party. Uh, but there's a very clear, and in one sense, once I've done this, that the parables have explained themselves. The parables are telling us that for God, people are precious. For God, it hurts him when we break the relationship that you and I were created to be in. I am made to love God 
and worship him and adore him for all time. That is my purpose. Regardless of what job I do or talents I have or hobbies I enjoy, my purpose here on earth is to love God and enjoy him forever. And until I do that, I am not quite the person I'm meant to be. That's God's plan and purpose for me. It hurts him when we live away from his purpose. Secondly, when we come back to God, God rejoices over us with singing. The angels sing praises before God in heaven because someone who is lost is now found. Something is lost, and when they are found, there is great rejoicing. And and I know this is, in one sense, a bit simplistic, but I need you to understand that if we can give God the joy of someone coming back to him, surely, because it links into our purpose, that's something we'd want to do. My whole desire in life is to somehow please a God who would die send his son to die on a cross for me. That's my, my whole purpose. And, and, and if I can do this by reaching out to people who want this and need this, and then know that when they come to faith, there is rejoicing in heaven in a very real way, that, that has, to give me, has to give me joy. Each parable also isn't just repeating the same thing, because that would be a bit boring. Each builds a bit on the last. So the first one explains that God cares about us and rejoices when we're found. That's the parable of the lost sheep. The second one I'm going to talk about today explains how we can go about seeking and saving those that are lost, because it builds and it adds a picture of a a woman scouring the house. Um, The guy, I reckon, probably lost the coin in the first place, and then the lady was left behind to find it. But we get a, a fuller picture. We get a picture of... A lady scouring the house. How do we reach out to the lost? And the last one explains and builds a picture of, well, who are the lost? Who are the people we should reach out to? So we've got a picture building up each one. The first one, the first parable, that God cares and reaches out. The second one is how we can do that. And the third one is is who we reach out to. Good and bad shepherds. Let's move on. Um, In the, the first bit, can you see... The picture, and I don't know about you, I love the Pharisees and the way they're written about in the Bible because they are a bit like, sometimes, panto villains. You get this, in, in this one especially, I love the word mutter. That's one of my favourite words. Do you, do you like the word mutter? I, I get told I mutter a lot. Um, I, I, I don't agree. I just think you can't understand me very clearly. But um, there's a sense that Jesus is having a lovely lunch. You see this picture, a dinner, everyone's there. It's probably quite a joyful celebration. And then you read these words at the beginning of chapter 15. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Bit of a panto villain from a distance. They can't have the guts to go up to Jesus and say, excuse me, are you not anxious about making yourself ceremonially unclean by mixing with these people, which is what they said. If I mix with these people, their sin catches unto me. And Jesus tells this amazing story, this amazing parable to, to challenge the teach. And I want to throw one idea into the mix today, uh, which I think is a bit new and fresh. I've read this uh, this week, which is this. The way Jesus answers the Pharisees is not just to say, look, the reason I eat with sinners is that God cares for sinners. This is the way I understand the parable before. I'm telling you a parable to show that the reason I'm eating with these people is that they are lost sheep and God cares for them. I think there is an aspect of the Pharisees being pointed at as being bad shepherds. Bad shepherds. Because what I mean is that Jesus says to them, well, if one of you had a hundred sheep, one of you had a hundred sheep, and you lost one, surely you would go out and find your lost sheep. He says that to them. He says, surely one of you, if you had a hundred sheep, and one of them got lost, surely you would go out to find your lost sheep. Can you see that in your passage? I'm not making it up. It's right there. He says, surely you would go out. I think what he's saying is to them... How come you boys would care for sheep more than the people you're meant to be teaching and bringing back to God? 
How come if you had sheep, you'd be straight out there looking for your sheep because of its financial worth to you, the wool, the mutton? Surely you'd go out and find your sheep. How come then, as bad shepherds, how come they cared more for sheep, even though they didn't keep sheep, Jesus knew their hearts, we know that they were a bit like this, than they did for the people. Their job was not to mutter. Their job was not to stand looking righteous. Their job was to be an example, to show what living by the law meant. I think there's an aspect of Jesus saying to them, well, how come you are bad shepherds in that you care more for sheep if you had any? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And, and I thought this is quite interesting as an idea because in the past I've always just read this and thought, Jesus is just telling them the reason I eat with people is that they are lost sheep. But there's a sense of a challenge, isn't it, that they are bad shepherds of their people. Jesus is the good shepherd. Why is Jesus the good shepherd? Do we know? Because he cares for his people. He cares for his sheep. He goes to them even though they're lost. We asked the question at Holiday Club, whose fault is it if a sheep wanders off? Normally you have to blame the sheep ultimately. (laughs) Your shepherd maybe could be watching carefully, but he's got 100 sheep to watch. The sheep are all there in a good pasture. The shepherd's brought them to the best place to eat. And the sheep thinks, I quite like the look of that dark, wolf-ridden valley over there. I think I'm going to go and get some fresh tucker from Wolf Valley. Um, And to be honest, the sheep, I don't know if you've ever seen it, I'd I'd love to pit a sheep against a crocodile in a fight, just because I'm a bit sick. But the reason is this, sheep are not offensive animals. They cannot fight fights. There is not really a more weak animal than a sheep, is there? I mean, they've got the tiny little legs. They're, They're basically cotton wool. Their mouths can't open wide enough to bite properly. You know, the most they can do is probably knit you a jumper and tie you down to the floor. You know, they have no hope alone. Why is Jesus a good shepherd? Jesus is a good shepherd because he went to find the lost sheep. And I think there's a sense that he's challenging the Pharisees, saying, you are bad shepherds. You are bad shepherds because if you had sheep, because of their monetary worth to you, you would go and find it. You care more about yourself than you do for others. You care more about yourself than you do for others. And Jesus is a good sheep because he always laid his life down for others. Now this got me thinking. It's a good thing that we are not Pharisees, isn't it? It's a good thing that we are not Pharisees. Because after all, none of us stay in cosy Christian clubs with just friends being with Christians. None of us do that. And none of us get so busy with church activity that we don't actually reach out to the community. None of us do that. None of us are so self-righteous that sometimes we judge other people and say, well, I would be their friend, or I would tell them about Jesus, but they don't really deserve it. Or None of us do that, do we? I mean, that's the really good news. None of us are Pharisees. None of us have a little huddle where we think, you know, actually, we don't want to work with that church because they're so different to us. None of us do that. That's really good, isn't it? None of us are Pharisees. None of us care more about ourselves than others, so that when we see someone and have that little prompt in your head that says, go and tell them something about me, you say, well, actually, if that is you, God... I don't want to look bad. None of us do that, do we? None of us are Pharisees. So that's that's really good news tonight, that that none of us care more about our own status and position than we do other people. It's good news, isn't it? None of us are Pharisees. And so I'm I'm grateful that I live in a church where we don't have any Pharisees um, who are better at muttering than they are at reaching people, because I'm a a Pharisee. (laughs) I am a Pharisee. And this is a challenge to me, because I'm meant to be a good shepherd too. If I'm meant to be Christ-like, I'm meant to be shepherd-like like he is. I'm meant to, as, my, as a pastor for you, not herd you as a flock, that makes you sound like just dumb animals. Do what I want. Go over there. 
it's not like that. But I'm meant to pastor you, but also in my life, I'm meant to be an example, a leader for my friends. It's a good job we're not Pharisees, isn't it? That we don't, I don't know, it makes you think. So if we are meant to reach out, because that's what being a good shepherd is about, how do we do it? Here's a question for you in a little group. In our second parable, we get three descriptions of what the woman does. She lights a lamp, she kind of cleans the house, scours it, and searches carefully. Okay, she lights a lamp, cleans the house, scours the house, and searches carefully. If, and we have to be careful about allegorising, um, as Chris was explaining with the last parable, remember last time, how the donkey represented the church and all this stuff. But I do think there is an aspect of how do we reach people in the second parable. This parable is building on the first, saying, well, if we are meant to reach people, here is how you find something that's lost. The good housekeeping guide. How do you find something that's lost? Using those three things, if we'll just flash this up here, uh, just on the screen, you'll see. There are three things in this passage, um, this little section, uh, that, that tell you what she does. Um, Have a look in your Bibles. Lights a lamp, cleans the house, searches carefully, okay, sweeps everywhere. What do those three things, what could they represent in terms of methods we could use to reach people who are lost? Does that make sense? For example, I'll give you a clue. What does lighting a lamp mean? If I'm going to try and light a lamp to show others and to reach people who are lost, in my life, does that, what does that mean for me? Does that make sense? If you're confused, raise your hand. Be honest. No? Good. Have a discussion. Okay. Light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully. If each of those things symbolise something, only for a couple of minutes, but I think there is use in this, how can we better reach the lost? This lady finds a lost coin by following this method. Um, what do each of these represent? Give it a go. Are you all confused? Be honest. Just nod quietly. No? Give it a go then. Okay. I know you may not have had some time, but I'm just interested in some ideas here. And I mean, I know this is in one sense allegorising a bit, but I think there is use in this because we often tell you in church, go and reach the lost. Go and speak to people, go and talk to people about you know, people that have, have been separated from God. And, and even if you're here tonight and you're still asking questions, we're not trying to do this as some kind of, you know, go and find them. Like, it's not about that. It's about that if we have a, a life in God that is what it's meant to be, a, a life complete, we want to share that with people. It's the greatest gift. Just some examples. What, what each of these three things, what could they represent in terms of how we could reach people? Does anyone have any ideas? Anyone? Kathy? Good, yeah, yeah excellent. Did, did anyone hear that? So the Bible says that we are to be a, a city on a hill, a, a light to the world. Um, and so if we want to go and reach people and tell them about God, you can't do that if your lifestyle is full of darkness. You know, the, the biggest thing people say about Christians nowadays, you're a bunch of hypocrites, you say one thing and you do another. Uh, I challenge you that this idea of lighting a lamp, if you are serious about seeing people coming into the kingdom and, and God rejoicing, challenge yourself about lighting a lamp, that's helpful. Did anyone else get something different about the light one? Because there are some other aspects. Yeah, Alistair? Yeah. No, definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's actually not, not hiding that, that you went to church today or, or not hiding it. And trying to, in conversation, not in a kind of weird, like, how was your weekend, do you love Jesus kind of way. But, you know, if someone says, I have a problem, saying, yeah, can, I, can I pray with you or, or pray for you? I, I believe prayer works. Um, that kind of thing is, is great to be visible. Uh, sweep the house. Sweep the house. It's a bit of a hard one. Did anyone get anything for this one? I'm interested. Did, yeah, Adam. 
I think, I think this is massively helpful. And this is the kind of sort of lines I was thinking on as well. The idea of, say if it's a member of your family you've had a fallout with in the past. Okay, and, sorry? Sorry, yeah. Uh, Adam said um, that sweeping the house could be that you try and remove any barriers to people coming back um, into God's kind of fault. Does that make sense? Like when you clean a house, you get rid of all the stuff so you can see clearly. For example, <coughs> say you've had a big row in the past. And that's caused some difficulties and they've, they've gone off. I would challenge you as a Christian, even if it wasn't your fault the row happened, to sweep the house. To make the first step and say, do you know what? Let's make things right. This is too important to let go. If you have um, messed up in the past and you know that that's been a big thing for someone and they're disappointed, I would challenge you, go and sweep the house, go and clean up. Does that make sense? you kind of there? Yeah, think about the ways where you can remove obstacles. If you know someone has massive questions at work, and we heard at the men's breakfast from Sarah Malik how uh, Kim Moforth was, was just there listening, you know, and, and that was enough for her. You know, he, he spoke a bit, but he, she said that she talks a lot anyway, which she does. Um, but, but he just listened, and she said at the end of her testimony, that was useful for me. It kind of removed some of the barriers. You know, think about practically, how can you remove barriers? You know, we do tend to spend quite a lot of time in a bit of a Christian-y huddle, don't we? sadly, you know, that's a barrier in itself. It was interesting, um, Syra was saying as well, that when she first went to a church, the first time, she's a Muslim lady, and she went to a church, and uh, she said, what were these Christians on? They stood up, they sat down, they sung songs, one guy at the front danced, but everyone else kind of looked at him. Uh, she was like, I don't understand what's going on, you know, they treat the Bible differently to the way we do. There were so many barriers for her. You know, think about how we can sweep the house. Search carefully. Any ideas on that one? Search carefully. How can we do this? How can we... Richard, any thoughts? Jeff? Don't give up. Yeah, don't give up. Don't give up. I think, you know, persevere with people. Pray hard. You know, think about who God's putting on your heart to, to speak to. Um, I think this is quite useful, because I think it builds on, okay, God wants us to reach the, like people that are lost. Yeah, here are some ways that we can do it. Just be visible. It's not that hard to be visible. Yeah, you might get some grief, but then again, if you get grief for God, what higher praise is there? Yeah, this, this whole passage began with Jesus getting some grief. He eats with sinners. If I can be more like him, that's not a bad thing. Um, he never became a sinner when he ate with them. That's really important, though. I'm not saying, yeah, just go and join a biker gang and club people. That's not what we're about here. But, but light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully. I think that's, that's fairly helpful stuff. And we're finishing now, um, right at the very end. The last parable, if we've looked at, we're meant to reach the lost, and here is how we do it. Last one, well, Who? Who? And we haven't got masses of time, and there's so much in this last parable. It's actually called like an example story. The two boys. I think it, it, it's named after the wrong person, though. Not because I'm all-knowing, but the, the father is the central character in this parable. Although one son who went off is the one that is named after, the prodigal son. The father is the central character. And this is a bit of a challenge for you. If you're here today and you're kind of thinking about, well, why should I even bother with this whole Christianity thing? I'm going to tell you that this parable has in it glimpses of what a father God looks like. Uh, it has glimpses of, because God rep- is representing the father in this story, it, it gives us some really important things to hang our hats on. So the first thing is, and this is our last kind of slide, is um, that the father at the beginning divides his wealth. Something else I hadn't realised, if you read this together, the younger son asks for the money. Yeah, the younger son asks for money. Who gets the money? Who gets the money when the younger son asks for it? Well, it says it right at the very beginning. If you look at this um, in verse 12, just have a look with me in your Bibles, verse 12. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. He actually, at that point, gave both sons property. 
Right at the very beginning. Which means that we start to understand a bit better. When the older son complains at the end, and the dad says, well, why are you complaining? You've already had all of this. It's all yours anyway. He wasn't just saying it is all yours because you live in my house. He's already divided everything between his two sons. We can tell, therefore, because the son didn't complain at that point, he maybe isn't quite the good son we thought he might be, the one that stayed at home. There is a sense of, he didn't kick up a fuss saying, no, father, we don't really want to wish you dead. We, we, we wish you want to keep the property. We don't want to disgrace you in that way. I'd never noticed that before. I always just imagined that the dad gave the younger son the money, the younger son walks his off, comes back with kind of lipstick on his face, um, that kind of thing. But there's a sense of dividing it right at the very start. God is willing to give you freedom. Willing to give you freedom. Both to choose wrong, but to choose right. And the reason why I love God first, this is a number one of five, is that God gives me the freedom in my life that I can't have with anything else. Everything else I've tried outside of God tends to tie me down, tends to wear me down, tends to hold me back. With God, when I go to him with my mistakes, I feel free. With God, when I live for him and him alone, I feel free. With God, when I am following him and him alone, I feel exactly as I'm meant to be as a human being because I'm created for his glory. I, I challenge you today. The first reason to come to God is that there is true freedom in this. Freedom from guilt, freedom from regret, freedom from fear of the future, freedom from thinking you are not good enough for God because God says you are. The father was willing to divide his entire wealth between his two sons. That's a good reason to come to God. Secondly, let's just work through these really quickly. When his son came back, despite the fact his son had spited him and wished him dead, he ran to his son and not to punch him. Because that's the way my dad would do it. I'd be like, my father's coming to meet me. Oh, dad, I'm sorry. Um, Actually, it would be my mum running. Dad was quite gentle. (laughs) But the father runs to his son with compassion. Despite the fact that his son has messed up greatly and has lost his wealth and has been associating with pigs in a very un-Middle Eastern way, in a very way which basically ignores the fact that his son had walked away from him, he wrapped his arms around him. The son had a little speech planned. My father, I'm sorry I've messed up. Please forgive me. And he doesn't get to say the words, can I be your servant? If you notice, he never gets to say that bit. Because the father's love is too clear for him. It would be an insult to his father to say, can I be your servant? Because the father's wrapped around him. The second reason why you should follow God is that God's love for you is more mind-blowing than you could imagine. God's love for you, even now, is more mind-blowing than you could ever imagine. It would sustain you through times where you've been far from him. It would encourage you in times where you're close. God's love for you is so deep that he would send his one and only son to die in your place. God's love for you is a love that you will not find anywhere else, anywhere else. In life, everything else that promises to love like God, it it comes close in marriage. If it's a good marriage, it comes kind of close. But with God, his love is perfect. Why should you come to God? Because he gives you freedom and he loves you deeply. Thirdly, he gives his best. He kills a fatted calf for the boy that had basically said to him, I wish you were dead. A calf that was kept for special sacrificial occasions, he gives to his son. He gives him the best robe, a ring. He gives him his best. With God and a Christian faith, God gives you his best. The Holy Spirit, God himself dwells within you and and excitingly changes you and moulds you into the person you are made to be. Why should you follow God? Because God is living and wants to give you his best. And lastly, he went to his other son. Do you notice that? That there's a point where 
the, the son that had run away is in the family home again, having a party, celebrating. All the servants are around going, this is the best party ever. We've got like a kind of a pig, or not a pig, oh, sorry, that's not, not going to happen, a cow. <laughs> they wouldn't have pigs. That was from before. They had a cow, a kind of a, 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 a cow roast, whatever it's called, an ox roast. And the older son is outside complaining, I've been there the whole time. I've been the faithful son. Maybe not quite, we've seen he's already had the wealth divided. You know, a sense of actually saying, you know, I've done so much for you, so much for you. You know, how could you not throw a party for me? You've not even given me a goat. You've not given me, like, fast food to share with my mates. Like, you know, it's just not fair. That sense of bitterness is something that's come between them. But the father has gone out to him with compassion as well. We see that in verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. He went out to reach him. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, when you have hurts that come up, when you feel disappointed with God, God is still there for you now. When you feel bitter and angry about all the stuff you've done, God is still there for you now. That's why it makes sense to follow God. So my last question is, who are you tonight? And we're going to flash them all up. I want you to have a look here. Who are you tonight? Are you a Pharisee? That you have no part in the seeking, but you're pretty good at muttering. Are you a Pharisee this evening? Because that is not a good place to be. They are bad shepherds. Bad shepherds. If you are a Christian, and all you seem to do is mutter, rather than seek the lost, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to make you change. It's that simple. Are you a Pharisee? Are you good at muttering, but not so good at seeking? Are you a shepherd? Are you seeking the lost? Are you actually thinking, well, these things are precious to God. These people are precious to God. Are you seeking the lost? In a very bizarre way, I'm going to ask you boys especially, are you housewives this evening? In the sense that are you doing all you can to seek the lost? Are you doing all you can to seek the lost? George is not sure about that one. Uh, (laughs) I don't want to be a housewife. But are you doing all you can, removing those barriers, sweeping away? And lastly, my most desperate wish this evening is, are you a son? Are you coming home? Because God has a place for you in his party, in his kingdom. The life with God is where you're meant to be. And I'd encourage you that because of all God has done, because of his great love, that's the place to be.